You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea with Dan Johnson, where we speak with some of the biggest security influencers in the industry about what is shaping the cyber landscape and what should be top of mind for the C-suite and other key security decision makers. I'm Ann Johnson, and today we're returning to our conversation about the legal side of tech innovation. My guest today is Gabe Ramsey, a technology litigation partner in the San Francisco office of Kroll & Mooring. With a focus on tech, Gabe and his practice have handled a broad range of litigation matters regarding computing environments, platforms, data access and usage, internet law, IP, cybersecurity, and regulatory issues. Gabe is an advocate for using the law to navigate unchartered tech territory in the courtroom and with various branches of governments in the U.S. and around the globe. He has carried out internet enforcement actions and investigations involving cybercrime, trade secrets, fraud and deceptive activity, data breaches, and more. And in full disclosure, Gabe is also Microsoft's outside counsel and recently was part of our efforts to disable several botnets. Gabe, thank you for being here. And it's a real pleasure to be with you today. So as I mentioned, Gabe, we've worked with you on many legal matters, the highest profile of them being Microsoft's digital crime units work dismantling botnets, which distributed spam and malware and furthered all manner of fraudulent activity. Can you give your listeners an idea of the landscape where botnets operate, what the criminals behind the botnets use them to do, and why these takedowns, both of the botnets and their creators, are so important? Sure. Well, so over time, let's say over the last 12 years in terms of cybercrime ecosystems, at the same time that the internet and all of the nodes and capabilities have become more pervasive in all of our day-to-day lives and on all the ways we experience on a day-to-day basis uh, as tools, the same is true for cybercriminals. They've been able to scale and leverage all those technical developments and robust technical approaches that we get the benefit of in the private sector, it's just normal, uh, good uh, members of the public to really malicious ends. So in other words, the ability to have hosting or very scaled access to internet domains and the ability to have much more bandwidth has enabled cyber criminals to really um, build very robust and dangerous technical architectures. So that's kind of the lay of the land today. And that, that's what makes the challenge year over year much more difficult to, to defend and deter. So can you just talk a little about, you know, how do we even think about or begin to disable botnets? I know one of our investigations, for example, was more than eight years in the making. What are some of the legal and some of the technical maneuvers that are so unique to this type of litigation? Sure. Well, so, uh, you know, there's a legal component for sure. But I think of, I think of these, uh, these legal uh, events that I'm involved in as much as they really are mostly technical operations. So they begin with a threat is perceived either by a company like Microsoft, always looking to protect its customers or others in the security ecosystem. And there'll be one or, uh, you know, one, one stakeholder or multiple stakeholders begin looking at a new threat. And it takes a while to really understand it. Um, it can take years to begin to even see, okay, here's the, here's the uh, demographics that a particular botnet or other infrastructure is targeting. Here's what its command and control infrastructure looks like. Here's how it operates. Here's all the fallback mechanisms and complexity. And after that technical work is done, and, and again, that can take a, quite a long time, then uh, approaches to, to, to disrupt it start to sh- take shape. 
And that could involve civil actions in the U.S. or, or even elsewhere to, by private parties taking control of infrastructure or, or turning it off, uh, or law enforcement or other agents of government using those tools to, to the same end, or even just good old-fashioned private sector cooperation through trusted relationships. And all of that comes together, and if it comes together well, uh, hopefully, to, to turn these things off and stop the harm. So presumably there's a whole lot of other botnets thriving out there. And we know that cyber criminals are smart. They keep adjusting the tactics so that they can stay ahead of us and keep them running as more are becoming also incredibly targeted. Um, and of course, we keep trying to dismantle them. Talk a little about, about how you think about this intense cat and mouse game that we're playing with the cyber criminals. Right. It's a, it's a constant struggle. I think the, the spirit of the answer is, those defending uh, networks and companies, uh, defending private sector stakeholders and the public interest just have to keep being creative and vigilant and stay on top of it. I think the cat and mouse piece is never going to fully go away. But at some level, uh, the, 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 the answer as a defender is, is really to scale. So if you're going to use this, um, the metaphor of cat and mouse or you know, whack-a-mole, it, it, you know, takedown efforts, sometimes there's a conversation that maybe, maybe it's whack-a-mole, that kind of idea. Um, I say embrace that. I think the model works best when one is, takes that approach to a level of scale and persistence uh, that really levels the cost asymmetry between victims and adversaries. Adversaries can keep tilting things up, but if we as defenders in the private sector and, and, uh, and government defenders of the public interests scale the response and make it equally quick and scale, then all of a sudden whack-a-mole becomes a quite a viable strategy and makes cybercrime really not worth it at some point uh, for the attackers. That's interesting. I think that, you know, the, we always talk about raising the cost to the attackers, right? Just make it really expensive for them and, and lower the return on investment. And if we're continually chasing them, and they're having to change their tactics. That does raise their cost. Absolutely. So I want to talk a little bit about data privacy because we're seeing a lot of global regulation take effect and there's not an awful lot of consistency. You know, one thing people have always said about GDPR is at least it gave consistency across the EU so that not every, you know, country was deploying their own regulation and forcing, you know, citizens and corporations to comply with it. But we're seeing at a state level in the U.S. and then in other parts of the globe just different, differing regulations. And as you know, Microsoft is a pretty strong supporter of the Washington Privacy Act, which is written would follow a lot of the California Consumer Privacy Act to secure data protection for people, you know, citizens in the state of Washington, near and dear to my heart because I live here um, in the state of Washington. And we're, we're, I guess the Washington Act, you know, we believe is building a bit on GDPR. But, you know, the legislation has outlined rights for Washingtonians to ask tech corporations, for example, for their data to be edited, corrected, deleted, exempt from sale, and those companies would, would have to make an effort to comply. And I know one of the things um, that I heard from our customers a lot with GDPR is, is that those consumer rights, like the right to be forgotten, the challenge for them is a consumer, if you're a large company, a consumer could be in, you know, a thousand parts of the company in some places. And if you miss just one and they, you know, they get an email from you after they ask to be forgotten, it, it's a regulatory issue. So can, can we talk a little bit about how you think about those things, both the, the privacy acts themselves, I'm going I'm to ask a pretty broad question, the privacy acts themselves, the difference in all the global natures and the challenge for corporations like Microsoft to comply, but also the citizen impact, right, which is, you know, theoretically to the positive. 
Sure. Well, so just uh, one reaction in, in maybe no particular order is it's interesting at some level, yeah, there's a patchwork of laws emerging globally in, in, in the U.S. states, as you've mentioned. They share a lot of features. And so most companies who have to comply, their very first question is, I've, I've thought about GDPR and implemented some uh, degree of compliance or another in the last few years. How does what I do now differ or, or vary from these new laws? And so there may be adjustments, but at some level, most large companies or medium-sized companies that are subject to these new laws, these new state laws, already thinking about this. And it becomes an exercise, I mean, it's just an exercise in efficiency. Can we abstract from this various set of regimes, a basic set of practices that is basically compliant globally? So that's how companies are approaching it, as I've seen it happen. Um, and then it may have the practical effect at this point that GDPR is in practice the law of many, many states and countries, because not every company has the resources to be slicing state by state or customer set by customer. So maybe that there is a kind of practical efficiency that's just happening organically. I guess the second observation is from that, the, the types of regimes that you've mentioned with these consumer rights and a, a fair amount of more control by consumers over their data. In the, in the ways that you mentioned, deletion and access and um, data correction and, under some of the laws. What it's really done is driven soul-searching in, in, within companies. Uh, that sort of this is at a high level. It forces the engineering teams and the legal teams to talk at a much earlier process and have a dialogue uh, that is really grappling with, do we even know what we have and how we're processing it? That's the rub. And for me, like I, I have, <laughs> and this is all in my personal capacity, I have some things I like and some things that I'm troubled by in, in almost all privacy law regimes. But the, the one overarching very positive thing, it really does force companies to spend the time and think and know what they have and what they're doing. That fact alone is a good development. I, I like how you highlighted that it will, ta- it will require the engineering and the, you know, the privacy folks to actually have earlier conversations to think about the implications of what they're engineering. With that in mind, but also, um, and, and I want to talk about facial recognition in a minute. I'm going to, I'm going to want to talk about it as a completely separate topic. But um, before I get there, you know, the House and Senate in the state of Washington, it, it didn't, the bill didn't make it through, right? Um, it just, it just diverged on enforcement and the bill ultimately didn't make it through. You have any thoughts on, um, you know, and I always hate to ask folks, um, you know, in the legal profession for their opinion, because you try to be very grounded in facts, I know. But do you have any thoughts about how that bill might come together and make it through in the next session of the legislature? Well, I confess I don't know that much about the legislative process in, in Washington and the, the, the exact political and practical uh, uh, pieces that would have to come together. But I do know this. In California, there's a very robust ballot initiative sort of regime that's possible. So you, you on any issue of public policy, you may have legislative efforts advancing at the same time that there's a ballot in, initiative advancing some set of stakeholders and others saying, we're just, we're just going to put this before the voters. And when they vote and if they approve it, the only way you can undo it is another, another ballot initiative. What that does is it creates a, a kind of dual path. If there's a ballot initiative coming, coming up, which is, there, there's a pending one now, I think, in California, and there was leading up to CCPA, it puts pressure on the legislators and all the stakeholders to really <laughs> engage in more rapid fire negotiation. I think that's kind of what led to CCPA in a way a little more quickly. So that's kind of the political backdrop. And I, it, it, it seems to me that there's probably, it's a, a, in the absence of that dynamic in Washington uh, state, a little, a little bit more traditional, slower role, all the stakeholders hashing it out and moving from one bill to the next. So it might take a little longer. 
Yeah, I think that's fair. So, you know, as a young um, college graduate with a political science degree, I moved to Los Angeles and I was fascinated um, many years ago about the, the ballot initiatives and propositions and how, the, how, how laws were actually made in the state of California. <laughs> it, was, it was truly a fascinating um, research view into, into how the world <laughs> operates outside of what you hear in the universe, right? <laughs> for sure, for sure, for sure. But I will say the Washington, the Washington bill, uh, you know, there's some differences. It's, it's quite a, there's some more breadth than, uh, than CCPA anticipated in some ways in terms of the types of companies that would be subject uh, to the, the regime and what sort of rights a consumer might have. But in broad strokes, it's quite similar, I think, to CCPA. And so at some level, I suspect that your state is destined <laughs> to have something like this. You, you would think, um, I, I suspect it might be, um, you know, with all the tech companies here, though there's as many in California, shouldn't be any easier or harder. So let's talk about facial recognition. Like facial recognition is something that, you know, right right now, as we're recording this podcast, we're um, dealing with, you know, the systemic centuries of systemic racism in the United States and racial injustice and folks really um, protesting um, to, for change, right? And it's one of those things that is touching all parts of society, whether it be popular culture, whether it be policing reform, whether it be government reform, um, but it's also tech, touching tech companies and tech companies being responsible in, in the technology that they're providing. So that, that brings me to the you know, facial recognition topic, which is, you know, as we think about the ethics and the legal frameworks of um, facial recognition software, and candidly any bio, bio, um, biometric recognition software, but facial being, being the most pervasive kind, at least for some law enforcement activities, can you give us your thoughts about how you balance the privacy and safety and security and non-tracking of, you know, citizens versus the, the needs of, you know, entities to um, safely identify folks and and what could be potentially some legitimate use cases. I just, you know, I'm going to leave that yeah. really Yeah, it's, it's hard to answer that question in the abstract, but I would say that the answer lies in process. So process, I mean that in both ends. So on the consumer end, in the, in the individual citizen end, process in terms of the types of legal regimes we were just talking about, knowing when a company's collecting being biometric data, facial um, features or otherwise from consumers and having enough visibility and control that there's more, more ability to manage where that's being stored persistently or not. And the same thing on the government side. So that kind of creates a reasonableness about what sort of data is out there in, in this regard and who has access to it, how long it's maintained as kind of a baseline set of factual circumstances. And then on the government side, I think it's probably worth uh, thinking about whether whether there are more specific type warrants and legal processes to to obtain this sort of data. Um, one of the weird uh, sort of tensions for me is things like facial, let's say facial features, largely public, but the data itself could be seen as public. Yet it's so powerful um, and and potentially leverageable in ways that are troublesome from a policy perspective. Just because the scale and, and sort of ubiquity of, of having even public data like that, so I, I'm not really sure that there's the current sort of wiretap or surveillance and, and uh, search warrant type legal pathways that law enforcement have grapple with exactly that type of data. They're not really well suited to think about what the right process should be. 
So it may be some thinking about what does it mean to, to be able to amass very skilled data that may otherwise be considered piece by piece public is a, is a policy conversation that would be useful, for example, the federal government. That's not a particular answer, but those are certainly big impulses about where the answer lies. Yeah, I think it's a consideration. I mean, Brad Smith, who, you know, is our, our general counsel, chief legal officer and president, has spoken very publicly as recently as Davos this year and very recently about the need for regulation around both AI and facial recognition. And part of that is because of the, you know, the unintended consequences and maybe in some faces, faces the bad faith efforts, but also because we, we there's so much bias that can be inherent to AI and it's been proven, right, um, uh, with facial recognition, how inaccurate it can be. I mean, from that standpoint, I, I think Microsoft has taken a very principled view that says that I think you're, I, I think you hit it on, on, it has to be process. It's not just the technology. It's, it's all the process and all the rules and regulations and how you build the technology. And it's, it's a holistic conversation. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where we go, where I, I, I feel, and I'm, um, probably like a lot of my listeners, I'm too young to have deep memories of, you know, the last time the United States was going through such a strong period of of driving racial equality. But it feels like a watershed moment for me, where a lot of these issues will raise to the top and and be dealt with in a a constructive way, right? So I'm I'm optimistic anyway, and and part of the outcome of that will be um, sufficient regulation around things like artificial intelligence and facial recognition so that we know what the use, what the appropriate use cases are and the process is regulated. For sure. I agree. I agree with that. But I think even before we get to those regulatory efforts, the kind of, I think I used the word soul searching by tech companies before, that's a critical ingredient. This sort of, sort of companies being very self-aware about what they have and how they're using it and crafting that policy will just make better policy because you know companies are, are by and large collecting this data, certainly Microsoft, and using it for very valuable purposes. So uh, I applaud that uh, uh, sort of awareness that Microsoft's advancing around AI in general and facial recognition. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's always great to be at Microsoft, let me tell you. We're, we're always trying to do thinking of things um, for the greater good in a principled way. You know, it's, 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 uh, it's good to have someone like Brad Smith kind of at stewardship there. Um, but let's talk about a topic that I'm sure you love, which is tort litigation. And um, I'm t- tying this into, um, you know, when you think about regulation, you think about privacy regulation, you think then about the dynamics potentially of, and I'm going to give you another one of those really, you know, esoteric questions, right? No, nothing abstract, I would say. Um, but do, have you spent time just thinking about how the impact of, you know, product liability related to things like facial recognition, artificial intelligence, how that will impact companies with tort litigation and what type of safeguards companies are going to need to start thinking about? Yeah, the, the place where I've given it the most thought is, is sort of nascent security laws. So not so much privacy laws per se, but what sort of technical controls need to be on devices. Um, and that's, there's very few laws directly addressed at that. There's a California Internet of Things security uh, regime that's, uh, that's, uh, that's not all-encompassing. Um, and, and beyond that, there's technical security standards that I think would be and will be leveraged in tort litigation as, you know, to start to define standards of care around security. Um, and so it's that interplay between um, wholly, wholly private sector rules and the lines for reasonableness and tort law for me that is that is most interesting. 
and kind of a place I think there's going to be a lot of development in terms of litigation and, and refining what those standards are in the next few years. There's been a lot of focus on privacy law and certainly litigation flowing largely from newer statutes that have statutory damages provision. But I think, um, you know, kind of the security side of things has been less litigated per se. So I would, I, I think the, the, the lesson there is for companies to just be aware that, you know, the, 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 the sort of arcane security features and standards that their teams are, are maybe well aware of really have legal implications that may not be obvious. That's a place for the lawyers to get plugged in early and understand what those standards are, what those very technical discussions are, um, because they'll have implications later. Yeah, I do. I do think they'll have implications there. And, and you know, Brad likes to say that you know we're operating with 21st century technology and you know 19th century typewriter laws. <laughs> it's so true. Yes. And I'm paraphrasing. This quote's a little better than that, but I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> The legal framework, even if you think about like unlocking cell phones and encryption and all of those type of things, right? There's just not a legal framework, which is why we end up with so much controversy around it. It's There's just nothing that's, you know, been really memorialized um, in a meaningful way and has a lot of precedent for us to follow, right? Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, that's one of the, we'll leave it at that. That's one of the most complicated policy tech conversations um, in, in play today, and maybe, maybe persistently. Well, it's been really great talking to you about the legal side of navigating threats and privacy. And one of the things we try to do is try to wrap up with practical guidance for our listeners. So can you offer a few takeaways when it comes to working within the law, you know, protecting consumers, or even if it's related to, you know, potentially thinking about companies who are out there actually doing um, botnet takedown work, you know, what are a few things that people should be thinking about right now? Yeah, I think I'll just kind of echo a theme that came out in our, our conversation today, which is the lawyers should really be engaged early in understanding the architectures, the networks, the technical details of product and the infrastructure of the companies that they work, even if it's not a tech company, because it both arms that lawyer to be better engaged with the, the engineers and the, the technologists who drive that piece of the company and manage their infrastructure to manage the risk in all, all the ways we've talked about today. So the privacy laws, the security laws. But also on the defense, kind of, you know, not bot down, botnet takedowns per se, but, but how does a company defend itself more, you know, more broadly through something like a, a legal action? That same lawyer understanding in great detail that, you know, what do our terms of service say? What does the nature of our, our network look like? They're going to be in a much better position to design early on defensive strategies with those IT and security teams. And they're going to be in a better position to, when an incident happens, collect information totally legally because it's inside the, the company's own borders, but collect information and help process it, manage it, maybe hand it to law enforcement much earlier in the process. And that is more likely to lead to identifying an adversary or coming up with good ways for the company to defend itself. So I guess the overarching theme there is lawyer awareness of the technical details early and often because it just arms them to do, do all kinds of good things to, to manage companies' risks. Well, thank you so much for being on. It was really good to have you. Um, really helpful information for all of our listeners to keep in mind. Um, it gives us a sense of both the challenges, but also the future of, of what you know cybersecurity and privacy legal landscape is going to look like. Very good. It's been a pleasure to be with you today. 
So my key takeaways from this episode was the complexity, right? When you're thinking about privacy laws, but you're thinking about the fact that that cybersecurity laws are just absolutely nascent. There is no really established framework with long precedent for us to even be operating under. And it's a, it's a challenging time for technology companies, for, for lawyers, um, for governments, but also for citizens um, to understand how they operate within the framework of some type of legal, you know, legal rulings that we just don't have yet. You know, we chose Gabe to be a guest. Obviously, we know Gabe at Microsoft. He's trusted and respected in the work he does, but he's also incredibly thoughtful in the conversation. He's insightful in the conversation that he has, and he's not hyperbolic. He just, you know, talks about the issues in an incredibly pragmatic way, and I thought that for the podcast, he would be an exceptional fit. I want to thank also our audience for listening to this season of Afternoon Cyber Tea. We'll be back soon with new episodes, conversations with cybersecurity experts, and insights for decision makers in the industry. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, we're talking scumbots with Paul Melson. Believe me, you're going to want to hear this. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.